Hey, Fellowship family. I've been singing that song for a long time. I grew up in the church. Remember that song? We need to sing it to each other to remind us that no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're facing, whether we're suffering or we're experiencing success, it is well with our soul. And that's made possible because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so because of that, because we have this living hope living in us, we've been exploring what it looks like to live out hope no matter what circumstances that we have. And in my Baptist church growing up, the choir director would turn after that song and we'd go, it is well. And the congregation would go, it is well. And he goes, with, let's just practice that, okay? <laughs> it is well. Good, not bad for Kansas, okay. <laughs> let's try it again. It is well. With my soul. And together, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's where we preach the gospel to each other. We need to hear that a lot and be reminded of that. That song actually was written by a guy named Horatio Spofford, and uh, he lived during the latter part of the 1800s. And he was a lawyer and real estate developer in Chicago. He, um, he and his wife had five children. He was an elder in a Presbyterian church in Chicago. And in 1871, they had a little boy, a four-year-old little boy, who died of scarlet fever. And so they dealt with this loss. And right at that, around that same time that they lost their four-year-old son, the Chicago fire happened. And he lost all of his holdings that he had in real estate. And so he went uh, literally bankrupt as a professional there. And the family wanted to get away, as they did, we do, right? We, We say, let's go on vacation, let's get out of here. So they decided to go on a vacation to Europe. And they decided because one of their friends, D.L. Moody, the great pastor who preached this, the gospel in, or preached the gospel in Chicago, uh, was preaching in England. So they said, let's go listen to D.L. Moody. And so they followed Moody. And uh, Spofford had an issue in him being able to go with his family. So he sent his wife and four daughters on a ship to go to England to listen to Moody. And then he would catch up with them and they would vacation throughout Europe. Well, halfway to England, their ship hit another ship, and their ship went down. And all four daughters drowned. And Anna Spofford was rescued from the water, unconscious. She was resuscitated. They made it to the shores of England. She sent an immediate telegram back to Horatio, and it said this, Saved alone. What shall I do? Think about how helpless that would be. And it wasn't a text message. It took a long time. He immediately, when receiving this, set to sail off with 
uh, just himself. And as he was on the ship, the thought occurred to him, I wonder where they went down. And because it was a tragedy that multiple ships knew, they knew the coordinates. So he went to the captain and said, when we pass over that area where my daughters died, I want you just to wake me up or get me and I want to go on the deck. And, I, and when that time, that point in his journey happened, he went out on the deck and he took some stationery that he had from a Chicago hotel and he wrote the lines to the song we just sang. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like, de- like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That song brings on a deeper meaning when you hear the story behind it. We want to be reminded, not only from the song, but much more importantly from the Word of God today, that things are well. Things are well with your soul because of the work of Jesus Christ in your life. The Gospel, again, invites us all and each into a living hope because of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. Today, as we finish up First Peter, we're going to be reminded of how to get through suffering. And there's two points. It's really easy. So if you forget everything else, remember these points. That humility is the way through suffering, and humility is the way to the suffering. That we're called in this passage to step down from ourselves... And to lift up God, even though we may be going through a time right now where our lives are humiliated. Because humility is a choice. Being humiliated is not a choice. And here, to these believers who literally were suffering, they gave their lives for the cause of Christ. Peter was reminding them, this is how you get through what you're going through. Take a look at 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning with verse 6. He says this, humble Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your cares or all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, church. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This word, humility, is throughout this whole passage. It's, it's kind of the motivation and the attitude, the posture in which we engage suffering. But it's the one that we're called to. It's not necessarily the one that we're operating out of. And humility is really the picture, just as we have a suffering servant, we have a servant who is modeled, this person being Jesus, who's modeled for us what it means to step down from ourselves in order to lift God and others up. And we're to do this in times of suffering. Peter says, yes. Let's take a look at this. And he kind of unpacks it in four different scenarios. And the first area is, is, look at this. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Humility is the way through suffering. So as we look at this, let's just unpack this. When I worry. You know, when you go through suffering, when you go through loss, when you go through rejection, when you go through the loss of a job or the end of a relationship, 
one of the first things that comes to your mind is, oh no, what am I going to do? And with that, your mind kind of engages and even your heart kind of pumps more blood and physiologically your body adjusts to, to trying to figure out a solution, to try to come up with an answer of what do we do? Where do we go? What should I think? What should be our next? And we start to worry. Worry by its very nature brings out fear, doesn't it? But here Peter says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I don't know what happens with you when you worry, but when I worry, I tend to construct a monster. And I try to have, I I don't necessarily do this intentionally, it just kind of takes over. And what happens when I start to process things is a smaller idea becomes a larger issue. And it magnifies the situation or the circumstances. Things in my mind morph into imagined fear. I tend to write a story about the worst case scenario that could happen. And I replay it and I reprocess it without any new information. And so therefore something that's small becomes very, very big. And it eats my lunch. And it's endless. I like that quote by Mark Twain. He says this, I have been through some terrible things in my life, some of which actually happened. (laughs) There's that picture, that worry just takes over and things terrify us. And the, the worst case scenario just comes up. But here we're called to do something. We're called to cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. That word cast is not like a casual taking off of a shirt or a garment. It's like, get it away from me. It's like swatting a wasp from you if you're allergic to them. And so we're called to, as followers of Jesus, to not let worry overwhelm us, not let our cares or our anxieties be things that dictate reality for us. We're called to cast them on Christ. How do we do this? How do we do this? One of the ways I do it, Daily, because frankly, hi, I'm Joe, and I worry. I just do. See that right there? That's the halo of worry. (laughs) But one of the things I do is I just write some of the things I'm worried about on a sheet of paper. And as we're going through the Living Hope Journal, and we're going through that, I write on that open page the things I'm worrying about. And I immediately go to the Lord and say, Lord, you got to take these. I can't take them. Only you can handle this one. Only you are going to intervene. Lord, I need your wisdom. I need your strength. I need the words to say because my words are not going to fix this one. I need things to do. And would you give me wisdom? Would you help me and give me the courage to speak up or to say things or to step down or to listen, to understand? And then when I turn the page, there's a relief about it. It's like God's got that. I don't know about you. I don't go back and read my journals. Because things I want to trust with the Lord, I just move on to the next day. There'll be new things to worry about next day, right? And so I can trust them, trust them with him. But look at what Peter's saying. Why would Peter say this to us and why can we trust Peter? Because Peter knew and experienced what it was like to humble his own life under the mighty hand of God. Peter, think about this. Two experiences in the life of Peter that just uh, come out to me and stand very strongly throughout the gospel account is Luke chapter 8. Jesus is with the disciples. A storm comes up. This is in Peter's wheelhouse. He was a fisherman, okay? He knew the Sea of Galilee. It's eight miles wide. It's 16 miles long. 
It's not that huge of a lake. It's not a sea. It's really not a sea. It's freshwater. And so he knew this area. It was in his area. He had a PhD fisherman. And a storm comes up, rattles his world. What do I do? Some of you have been that professionally. An area of suffering has hit your stronghold. Your, not your stronghold, but where you find your strength, where you find your reputation, and it's attacked, and you feel helpless. And so Jesus is sleeping. So the disciples say, well, don't you care that we perish? Jesus gets up. He looks at the wind. He looks at the waves, and he goes, hey, quiet. And everything stills. I don't know about you, but I can curse the snow in Topeka till I'm blue in the face. And in February 2019, the snow is going to keep falling. It just is. Welcome to Snowmageddon. But Jesus, but Jesus, when, who created the, the world and the universe and all that is, and everything exists for him, when, when he just said, quiet, maybe he just went, shh. Everything stopped. What did the disciples say? Who is this dude? Even the wind and waves obey him. Peter experienced the mighty hand of God. The hand that formed the universe said stop. Why don't we listen to that hand? Why don't we listen to that voice? It's the question that that story begs of us. And then the other episode, uh, event that happened with Jesus was in Matthew 14. This time, Jesus isn't, isn't in the boat, but they're in the boat again. And they're, they're out, again, strong area of his life. I know fishing. I know how to maneuver. This isn't this huge vessel. It's just a, it's a regular fishing boat. And a storm comes up, and they see a figure out on the sea. They thought they were hallucinating. So Peter, I love this. I share this. Open mouth, insert foot syndrome. Lord, if that is you, invite me to walk out with you on the sea. Jesus bids him. He starts walking. How? The mighty hand of God. But then he took his eyes off of Jesus. He started sinking. Lord, save me. And he does. He experienced life of what it was like to walk, hanging on to the mighty hand of God or not, turning away. He said, the water was up to here when I started handling this on my own. But I literally walked on water when the mighty hand of God held me up. Peter knew this. He lived this. And of course, he saw and experienced and did life. After the resurrection with Jesus, the bodily resurrected Christ, he knew the mighty hand of God. So that gave him the reputation, that gave him the cred for him to go and say, look, church, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. I've resisted, by the way. I've resisted, but humble yourself. And in the proper time, he will lift you up. When you worry, when you worry, and you will. I think about all the worries in this room. I see the screen lighting up with things you're worrying about. What's one thing you need to cast on the Lord right now that's eating your lunch? Your job? Your relationship? Finances? Addictions? Strongholds? What's one thing you just go, God, I can't do this one. But you can Just trust that to the Lord right now before we move on. Say, God, I worry about this. And by the way, God's not going, oh, I didn't know that. He's going, I see it. I see it. Thanks for calling it. Thanks for humbling yourself. Second thing is when I'm self-dependent. 
Look what Peter says. He says, be sober-minded. That must speak to people who thought, I can handle this on, on my own. And my goodness, have I learned this the hard way, folks. I have learned that humbling myself as a husband and as a father has meant the most to my family. And humbling myself as a pastor in your church is one of the best practices for me because I have known what it's like to try to handle things myself. As our church has grown from a hundred people to where it is now, there's this, been this thought as we've grown and as we've had different growing pains and struggles that I needed to come up with the answer. And if I didn't have the answer, oh man, you're not that good pastor. You probably need a different person in here who can answer those things. And I would feel so alone and so isolated. And I would fear that the solutions, I don't have the solutions to the problems. And then, and then, just try this sometime if you're ever called in the ministry, trying to keep people happy. Oh, man. I mean, maybe one of you, but not all of you. I can't keep all of you happy. And I tried and tried, and when someone would leave, I didn't like your preaching. Okay, fine, I'm sorry. But I got to be a better preacher then, you know? And all that fear. I remember there was a time about 10 years ago where I literally lost it emotionally. I broke down. I couldn't handle it anymore. And I remember the insecurities in me were just ruling. I mean, I felt so helpless. And on the outside, it may have looked like I had everything together, but on the inside, I wasn't sleeping. And it was just tearing my life apart. And I remember there was a time when Rick Tagg came up to me, who was on our elder team, and says, hey, Joe, how you doing? And I looked at him, and I just burst into tears. And I'm not a crier. I'm not a crier. But I was. And I just lost it. And at that time, the elders came alongside of me and prayed over me, lifted me up, came alongside. And and then I even sought out some good therapy that spoke the word of God into my life. And I had to deal with things that I had been pushing down all my life. But see, it took humility to do that. Because pride would say, I got this. I got this. Or you just need to leave. Wow, that doesn't work because I still have me. I can leave every environment that I people get upset with me or I get upset with them, but I still have me. And so sooner or later, I have to humble myself and I have to put myself under the mighty hand of God. This is, by the way, Jesus told me through that, not through an audible voice, but through his word. He said, by the way, Joe, this is your church and I got it. I got it. This is, this is not your church. This is my church. This is my bride. I'm preparing them for eternity. You're, you're a servant in the mix. And I want you in the mix. But you are not me. And I think about it, even in my own life, I look at the areas of sin or strongholds that I deal with personally. And it can be so tempting to have an inflated view of myself. Or on my worst day, a deflated view of myself. That's why my eyes always have to be on Jesus, not drunk with myself or drunk with the lies of this world, but sober-minded. I see God in his rightful position and me under him, right? That's a humble position. And then when I'm tempted, when I'm tempted, 
Look what it says here. These are some strong words. It says, be watchful, church, then your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Okay, so let's just talk about Satan or the devil here. Uh, and our, our culture basically doesn't believe in Satan. They believe the church has made up Satan to scare Christians into being good people. But if you, if you live in this world and you open your eyes and you're watchful and you look around you, you really have, you cannot deny that there is good and there is evil. And behind good and evil, there are personals, there are persons behind that. And God as shown is good and Satan as evil, the one who's tearing down the kingdom of God. And as a follower of Jesus, there's also a tension. There's a tension to think that everything is related to Satan and his work in my life. And so we blame everything on him. And so when we mess up, we go, ah, well, devil made me do it. Or like (laughs) I grew up in a church and a lady was bringing brownies to a church event. And as she was pulling them from the oven, they slipped out of her hand. They fell on the floor. And she goes, well, Satan did that. No, you dropped it. Don't pick them up and bring them back to church. Just do a new pan and then we'll do the event at church. It's no big deal. Satan's not in everything. And then if you go to the other extreme, Satan's not in anything in my life. And he's way off in Africa or somewhere else where they're more superstitious and he's working there. He's not working through systems and structures here in the States. And and we need to guard ourselves from that lie also. He said, be watchful. Don't be distracted, church. Your adversary, the devil, and he paints the picture of a, of a lion. And again, even here, even here in the U.S., we don't have many pictures of the fear of what a lion would do. But if you talk to our African brothers and sisters who live out in the, in the plains of Africa, this is a very real threat. Every day is watchful for this. We kind of go, look at the lion over there. They're sleeping And I'm not here for feeding time because we see him at a zoo. But this is a very real threat to us. And it has to do with when we're tempted and buying the lie when we're tempted. I think that there's some vulnerabilities we need to be aware of and watchful of. As Jonathan Sublett and I practiced uh, for this and prepared for this message together. And we do that because our messages at our Highcrest campuses, our campus is aligned with our Eurish campus here. So their brothers and sisters over at Eurish, or at uh, Highcrest are hearing the same message. But he said, we're most tempted, we're most vulnerable to temptation when we're hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. And so I want to deal with two of those today, and I'll be done by noon so that you aren't hangry, Okay. But there's an interesting thing that happens in each of us when, when we're lonely or when we're angry. Uh, the number one reason people give for embezzling funds from the company is they think they, they're owed it because they're angry at a policy. They think they deserve that. So it rationalized. You'll cheat on your taxes if you think that our government's not spending the money right, right? I'm angry at our government. Oh, we will lie on how much I gave this year. We can do that. We're all tempted in an area where we're angry. And so humility is the way out of this. And even when we think when we're caught in a sin or we're exposed to our own sin, it's easy for us to just go, hey, just stop it. Let's pray. Amen. (laughs) That would be a really good message, wouldn't it? Two words, stop it. But that's not, when we make sin our issue, 
it's really not seeing the target of it because Jesus made our sin his issue, okay? Jesus took on our sin. He realized we couldn't save ourselves. We are no, not personal saviors. He is our savior and he lived a perfect life for us. He died a final death on the cross for our sins, for forgiveness. And then he rose again on the third day. And it's, it's because of grace that we're saved. It's all his work on our behalf. And so even when we're tempted, we're called to come back to Christ and realize he's our only way out. It's not in sin eradication because only Jesus will take that from us when we fully and finally meet him and are restored by him. But it takes humility for us to call it sin. It takes humility to go, there are better people. There are better men than I. That when they put themselves in that experience or in that circumstance, they fell. They're better men than me who have fallen in this area. And so therefore, I take precaution. I set boundaries in my life. The worst, the worst place to talk about boundaries in dating is the backseat of a car, right? Because couples better than you have fallen there. The worst place to, to be as a guy struggling with porn or a girl struggling with porn is right in front of the computer screen late at night with no one around you. That's the worst time to make that standard. Why? Because you're most vulnerable in there. So a humble person says, look, if I'm in that situation, I'm going to fall. That's just who I am. And I've done it before. And so I need to not put myself in that position. Jesus, would you give me a better appetite for life and for the dignity of women than porn? Would you give me a better picture and a better vision for life than just buying one more gadget? We need that. We need that. Then the third area is when I'm feeling alone. Look at how Peter addresses it. He says, knowing knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, this is really an interesting concept because he's saying, don't do this alone, and you're not alone. When you're suffering, and when you're going through a trial, and when you're hurting, and you're in pain, or you're rejected, the number one temptation is you're alone. And and here's what you hear from friends who are suffering. Here's maybe even what, what you're saying is nobody knows. Or if you knew what I'm going through, you would do this too or say this also. Or you have no idea. Those are, fra- those are phrases of the victim. Now, they're normal. It's normal to do that. And that's why Peter says this. You're not alone. You're not alone. Church, think about what God is doing. And he addresses them uniquely, but he also shows what God is doing in unity around the world right now. I think about all the things that are happening in each of our lives, all the things that we're dealing with that cause us to suffer, that cause us pain, that cause us frustration in our week, and just go, look, you may feel that, but you're not alone. You're not. And especially if you look outside of the United States. I know in the United States, we got Facebook. We can look at all the awesome people and their wonderful smoking hot wives and all that kind of stuff that they put on Facebook. And you can compare your life and even feel more lonely. But look outside of the U.S. 96% of the world's population, there's a lot more suffering outside of this, in this world going on right now. There's a lot of people who are giving up a lot to stand for the person and the work of Jesus. When you suffer, you're not alone. Listen to the Father in this. Peter's saying, you're my child. You're in my family. He uses words like brotherhood. 
Come together, family. I'm using each and every one of you, unique and at the same time unified, to reveal a greater purpose, a greater reality, light in darkness, victory in, in the midst of loss, life in the face of death. When you're feeling alone, humble yourself. Pride will say, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. God, if you loved me, you wouldn't have ended this relationship. You wouldn't have taken that person. You wouldn't have allowed this to happen to me. A deflated view of self says, I deserve this, God. I'm always messing up. A humble view says, God, what do you want to do here? Because I don't know what you're doing, but I'm willing to trust you. You're feeling alone. Remember, you got a brotherhood. Join in. And that's why we get together I know this can be a habit. This can just be what my family does. But this ought to be a lean-in to the word of God. This ought to be something where we preach the gospel to each other when we lean into God's word and when we sing it as well together. We're proclaiming the gospel. It really is because of the resurrection of Jesus. So humility is the way through suffering. By the way, is there anything right now that the Spirit has called in your mind that you need to humble yourself with? Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's a difficult child. Maybe it's a frustrating boss. Maybe it's, maybe it's a secret sin no one but you and the other person know about right now. Humility is the way out. Everything God has for you is through humility. you stepping down, listening. Is there anything right now? Just say, God... I need to be humble with this person. I need to take the humble road with this situation. I need you to show me what that's like. And if you just prayed that, if you just asked that, I know he's going to show you. He's going to lead you. He will exalt you in the proper time. Let's continue reading, though. In verse 10, it says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Before I explain fully this text, I want to just talk to you about, look at the bookends that Peter mentions here. It says, I just want to do that. After you have suffered a little while, it doesn't seem like a little while. Never does when you're going through times of suffering. For me, a family on vacation, everything's going well. Time screams by. Beautiful people, people who look like me and act like me and behave like me. Love that time. Time screams by. Difficult person, a physical ailment, a struggle with relationships, tick tock. It never moves forward. Yes, everything slows down. But Peter's saying, look, look, you're part of a greater story here. You're part of a greater picture of what God is doing. After you've suffered a little while, look at verse 11. You will be with him forever and ever. And whenever you add an ever to a forever, it's a long time. It's a long time. And then he says, Amen book's not over, but he put an amen there. What's that for? The amen is, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus, make this happen. I want the ever and ever to happen now. Because there will be a time in the future that whatever you went through here on earth will be explained. You will see the why behind the what you had to go through. And you will look at that in the realm of eternity 
and you will go, that was a little while. This is forever. So Christians, that's why we have hope. Because we're not stuck in the right now. This is not the end of the story. You are priceless. You are eternal. You have significant value with the God who created and fashioned you. He loved you so much, he knew you could not save yourself, so he sent his Jesus, the Son of God, to live and to die and to resurrect from the dead for us so that we could have forever and ever. Amen. That's that picture. So humility is the way through suffering, but this is also the picture of that humility is the way to the suffering. It's only when we humble ourselves that we can actually go to others and serve them and love them and help them in times of difficulty. Look at says, he says, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This didn't just happen in First Peter. This isn't just a New Testament concept. All along, it's been the heart of God amongst the fall, amidst sin and evil, for him to come alongside and restore and confirm and establish and strengthen. Look what it says in Psalm 147. It says, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He leads the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. This is a God who is caring and coming alongside people. What is Peter, Peter called them in Asia Minor, these, these churches that were suffering. He calls them elect exiles. There's people outside of Jerusalem, the castaways. God has a heart to restore them back. But then we get a picture from John and his view of heaven in John 21. He says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Suffered a little while, passed away, when Christ returns forever and ever. Amen. That's the picture. Now look at the four things that it says that God will do personally to each one of his children who endure suffering. He will restore. That means to make complete, to bring it back to the way of his intention, of how he created things to be. Confirm, to establish and to solidify, solidify something that's shaky, no longer tossed to and fro, strengthen something that's grounded and rooted into deep, deep rock, and then established, established something that's, that's, that's solid that was once dangling. That's the picture of those words. Now, all four of these are synonyms. So if you ask me, what does restore? Well, you could go confirm, strengthen, or establish. That just answers it. But what's Peter doing? He's saying, it's all the same thing. You're going to be restored by God. And he will do that personally. Think that. Wherever you're at now, you feel alone. You feel frustrated. You feel like it won't ever end. But let me just ask you, just can we fast forward? Now, we can do this on Netflix. We can't do this in life. But can we fast forward to an image at least? Of the face of God in you. Overwhelming to think, but the face of God, he will personally, he himself, will restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. What's one thing you're looking for him to do in you? I'm, I'm looking forward to him taking my desire to compare my life with everyone else's. I can't wait till that's taken away. And I no longer care. 
I love him and I love others the way he loves me. Can't wait for that. I can't wait to really know of his love, really, as his child, deeply loved. Nothing I could ever do to impress him because he loves me completely already. I look forward to that time where my only desire is Christ and to make him greater forever and ever. I look forward to that time of moving all the way from being a gadget guy to being a guy who's only fixed on the inheritance of Christ. I look forward to that. What are you looking forward to? And then secondly, what are you looking forward this restoration will do around you with a new heaven and a new earth? See, believers who can't wait for God to restore them and to restore the world around them will move to the suffering. If you don't think God's enough for you, if you think that he's a letdown, you'll never look to come alongside the suffering. If you compare your life with others, you will rejoice when bad things happen to them because you come out on top. If you are competitive with others, you will actually feel better when they lose things because you're on top. We've got to give that up and humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God and allow it, him to work in our lives. So church, just as we go, I want you to think about this message. Humility is the way through. What do you need to humble before the mighty hand, under the mighty hand of God? And secondly, church, when we come alongside hurting people, when we come along places that are suffering And we humble ourselves and we don't come in with, I've got all the solutions, just be like us. But when we listen to understand and respond appropriately with the grace of God, we show a picture. Church, listen to me. We show a picture of ultimately what Christ will do with us when we appear before him. And so church, we are going to be imperfect and incomplete, but we're still called into coming alongside the suffering and restoring confirming, strengthening, establishing. And when we do through humility, guess who becomes greater? Guess what picture people want to see? They want to see ultimately the fulfillment when God returns through Christ. So would you stand with me? And I'm going to pray for you. No matter what situation you're going through, I just want to commit you to the Lord and seek humility. And then... Kelsey's going to come up. We're going to just sing that last chorus of It Is Well as we send each other out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person in this room. You know exactly what's going on in their lives. We all look good on the outside, but you know what we worry about. You know what we're suffering with. You know what we're challenged with and what's a struggle for us. And Lord, just bring us to the end of ourselves, showing us, thank you for showing us in your word that we can't do it on our own. We have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And as we do, Lord, just show us your power and your presence. Give us a greater and a deeper faith to trust you when we don't know what's happening in and around us. And may we as a church humble ourselves and may you take us to those who are suffering. Personally and corporately. May we be your people who are known for our humility in you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, sing this.